our discussion points on SoundCloud. I haven't been able to get the data from, from I, um, iTunes, but we have, we have more people listen than come. <laughs> I've had about 80 people listen yes. to last week's. It, isn't it crazy? Isn't it crazy? It's a funny, funny world. It's a funny world. Mind you, there's a group of about 10 who listen in, in, in um, Bucharest. I don't suppose they could come to church on Sunday, could they? Couldn't buy <laughs> See, people are hungry. People are hungry for the word. We don't really understand that in Australia. I think there may come a time when we do, when, when there are more and more restrictions placed on, placed on us, but we, we don't have the same hunger that people in other countries do to hear the word because they don't have the same opportunities that we do. But anyway, that's not what I'm here to talk about. But it's a great thing that though we may be small in number, there's still that reaching out into the world. And praise God, people are being encouraged by it. Let's, let's pray that that would be the case. So today I want to continue with my little mini-series on why the institutional church matters. And uh, today I want to talk a little bit in terms of a continuation of the theme from last week. But I also want to share with you some of my thoughts on why it is that we seem to have this kind of divide. And people don't think that being part of the gathered church is as important as being part of the scattered church. In other words, people go, they go to work Monday to Friday. They're diligent about that, but they're not diligent about participating in the church gathered. And that perplexes me. It always has. Um, but, I, but I think there are good, strong theological reasons why the church gathered matters to God. And it matters a lot to God. And we went through that in some detail last week. And I don't want to go over all that again. However, there, there's these two short passages that I think are so important to our understanding. And that is, God sees us individually as temples of the Holy Spirit, but he also sees us corporately as a temple. So each one of us, because we have the Holy Spirit living in us, that happens at the moment of our salvation. Our spirit is regenerated. The spirit person is regenerated. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in us. So that's the sense in which our bodies, that is us individually, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now the importance of the temple, of course, in, in Israel's history was that was where God dwelt. So by His Holy Spirit, God dwells in us. But also... Ephesians 2, verses 20 to 22. I had a longer excerpt last, last week. But together, see this together, when we're gathered together, we are his house. We're not his house when we're scattered throughout the world. We're his house when we're gathered together. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in Him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through Him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling 
where God lives by his spirit. So see, there's these two concepts. Us individually being a temple of the Holy Spirit, but when we're gathered together, we're carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So God not only dwells within us as individuals, but he dwells within the church gathered. Now the institutional church in and of itself doesn't matter. And we, we talked last week how that word um, ecclesia never refers to the church building or the, or the church institution, but it refers to the, the assembly, the assembled ones, the ones who are called out and they're called out for a purpose and they're called into assembly. It's not the building, but see, the building facilitates the assembly. You see that? So it matters, but it's not of the same importance as the actual assembling of the people. We could do it outside under a tree. That's, that's neither here nor there. We do it in a building because that's more convenient. That, that's all. And then there's an institution built around that, which facilitates the gathering together. And of course, because there are 1.3 billion Christians in the world, we're not all going to get into the same physical place. And so the church becomes broken up into congregations, local congregations. Now I want to move on and um, share with you some other scripture, which I think has often been misinterpreted. You know that we say at Ignite Life Church that the purpose of Sunday is Monday. In other words, the purpose for which we gather together is not so much so we can have a good time together, but so we can actually be encouraged and supported and equipped for what we do after church. So in a sense, the real purpose of being together is to equip us for when we're apart out there in the world. Now, everybody has heard Ephesians 4, 11 to 12. It's quoted many, many times. And it's often used as a basis for preaching. Now, these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. So the ultimate purpose is actually to add to the number of Christians on earth. That's what building up the church, the body of Christ, is all about. It's also about us, if you read on, coming together in unity, that's in unity of thought, in unity of mind, in unity of heart, in unity of understanding. Now you can read commentary after commentary, book after book, and the focus is on the word ministry. Now this translation here is from the New Living Translation. It talks about um, to equip God's people to do his work. Most other translations talk about equipping the saints for the works of ministry. And a lot of the commentary focuses on ministry. 
and what is ministry in their view. It's what I'm doing now. Like ministry is all about being a professional priest or pastor or minister. And, all, and the works for which people are being equipped are the works which are done in the context of the institutional church. Now, I want to suggest that that is far too narrow a way of looking at it. Rather than focusing on ministry as something that the professionals do, why don't we focus on his work? What is God's work? This is a good question. What is God's work? So what, what's God working to achieve on the earth right now? In, in what sense? Us. As individuals? Yes, that, that's true. He's working on us. But, but just in terms of the overarching story or meta-narrative of the Bible, what, what's, what's God doing on earth? Yeah. So God is about, if you like, redemption and transformation. Right? And, and, and he works through us to redeem the whole of creation. What does redeem mean? It just means actually to be, to be bought for a price and then brought back to the original state. So redemption really is all about bringing us back to the blessings of Eden where people live entirely trusting in the provision of God and where there was no sickness, no suffering, no pain. So redemption is something which exists but is also unfolding. It's one of those funny things like the kingdom of God is here now but it's also unfolding as we come closer and closer to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So God is about redemption. It's about transformation. God transforms individuals. He transforms communities. And believe it or not, he transforms nations. Right? That's what he did with Israel. And that's what he wants to do with all of the nations of the world today through us. And there have actually been a few cases in history where whole nations were transformed by Christians. Perhaps we don't see that so often today. But the focus is this. What's God, what is God doing? God's work is about transformation. Now, transformation is not something that actually happens in church on Sunday. I mean, there's a degree to which it happens to individuals, but we don't transform a community and we don't transform a nation by being in church on Sunday. That happens when we're out there in our family, in our neighbourhood, in our workplace, wherever we happen to be um, volunteering, right? When we're rubbing shoulders with people out there in the world. That's when transformation of community and transformation of whole societies actually happens. So it's much broader than equipping you to do something for me to make the church run better. 
Alright? So my job as a pastor is to equip you for what God has called you to outside the church. And that doesn't mean the church isn't important. You know that. I spent plenty of time talking about that last week. It matters. You've got to have both. It's like the, the two wings of an aircraft. You can't fly a one-winged aeroplane. It's got to have both wings. So the church gathered and the church scattered are both important. Now, I've often wondered, why, why is it? How did we end up getting to the point where for many people, at best, going to church on Sunday is about consuming something, having a good experience with the worship, enjoying the preaching, right? At that kind of very shallow level of consumerism. How did we get to this point? Well, I think actually the church, the institutional, the institutional, the institutional church has something to answer here. And I want to talk a little bit about what is referred to as the sacred-secular divide. Now, this is not new thinking. It can actually be traced back, I think, to Aristotle. So he wasn't a Christian, of course, and um, Aristotle lived a long time ago, 384 BC to 322 BC. But, but in his philosophy, there was this notion that there were really two spheres of human activity. And the one that we should strive for, which was the better one, was the contemplative life. The life of thinking and the life of rhetoric. The life of, 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 of the word. That versus the practical. The practical stuff we have to do in order to live. So there is work that is necessary so that we can actually live, so that there can be food on our plates and a roof over our heads and clothing on our backs and so on. But in his view, that was not as important. And, and most of that was left to the slave class. But this, this, this higher class of people were able to live the contemplative life. And so there's this separation between those two aspects of life that goes all the way back to Aristotle. Now the New Testament was pretty radical because you never find any evidence of that divide in the New Testament. No evidence whatsoever. The New Testament had what we might call a whole of life perspective. That our, our spiritual nature carries through to everything that we do. And you'll see lots of references to work, to slaves, which is roughly equivalent these days to employees, although we're not to be treated in any way like, like slaves. But there's lots in the New Testament about work, but yet no evidence that God sees work as being separated somehow from the other spiritual stuff, like what we call worship. Right? And actually, there's a Hebrew word, avadah, which can mean work, worship, or service, all three. And that, that's where this idea that work is worship actually comes from, that we can worship the Lord in our work. It's not just singing songs in church, 
So the New Testament, although people were living in a in a time that was heavily influenced by Greek philosophy, the New Testament is quite radical in the sense that it never ever indicates some kind of division between that which is spiritual or sacred and that which is secular. You come down a little bit further and Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea, that's not the Eusebius, the bishop who um, baptised Constantine. He was the bishop of Caesarea, lived from around 260 to 339 um, AD after Christ. He identified this kind of division between the perfect and permitted work. So there was sacred work, somehow or other that was perfect. That was the work of the, the priests. And then there was permitted work, secular work. So the work of the craftsman, the work of the farmer and so on. God permitted it, but it wasn't on the same level. So there's a hierarchy of goodness and the um, the perfect was somehow hierarchically to be preferred to the permitted. Now he recognised that it was important, that all this work was important, but it wasn't seen by God as being on the same level spiritually as perfect work, which was the work of the priests. We come a little bit further to the 4th century. St. Jerome said this. Well, he didn't say this because he didn't write in English, but this is the translation. He says, a merchant, that's somebody in the, in the trade, can seldom, if ever, please God. So, Mark, how do you like that? You're a teacher. You go to school every day. You can never please God by being a music teacher. Pamela runs a bookkeeping business. You can never please God by running a bookkeeping business. How are you going to feel if I preach like that every Sunday? (laughs) (laughs) St. Augustine, again in the 4th century, business is in itself evil. Now, that probably gives a slight... A misimpression of, of what he really meant. He wasn't really saying that business can never be a righteous activity. He was just saying there was so much sin in business that it becomes an evil pursuit. So, you know, we're seeing this, this great divide beginning to emerge. There's all that spiritual stuff the sacred stuff, and that happens essentially in the professional arm of, of the church with people who are ordained as priests. And what everybody else does, it matters, it's important, but it's hierarchically inferior in God's eyes. Gregory the Great, who became the Catholic Pope a little bit later, Thomas Aquinas, a bit later still, they, they looked at uh, life as, as comprising the vita contemplativa and the vita activa, 
that should be an A, not an E. That's the spell auto spell that does that. Uh, the Veda contemplativa, uh, contemplativa, that was the sacred stuff. The prayer, Gregory the Great actually said, you know, Jesus practiced both. He said he healed, he used to heal people in the daytime and he'd pray at night. <laughs> and um, Thomas Aquinas actually said that the, the, um, the Vita Activa precedes in time. Yeah, it precedes in time the contemplative or the, the Vita Contemplativa Contemplativa or whatever. <laughs> anyway, that, right? But he also said the Vita Contemplativa supersedes the Vita Activa in merit and reason. In other words, it's somehow better. Because it was priests and monks and so on. They were the ones who specialised in that contemplative life. So their own roles in life were elevated. They were more important somehow, spiritually speaking, than the work most people did. It's pretty ironic, really, that the Catholic Church was the only church up until the Reformation. Effectively, there was the Orthodox um, existed, but most of the world was, uh, was Catholic. By the 14th century, the Catholic Church was actually, by far and away, the biggest political, social, and economic enterprise on earth. So despite the fact that there was this thinking that somehow there was a hierarchy with all the sacred stuff up here and then all of the, the, the earthly work, the farmers and the artisan and the craftspeople and the, even the work of the judges and so on, that was all somehow down here at a lower level. But nevertheless, the church behaved in a different way. So their theological and existential positions were a little bit different. And uh, that was one of the things, among many others, that prompted Martin Luther to write his 95 Theses. Now, he, he didn't set about to change history in the way that he did. He actually just wanted to have a discussion. It was actually students who took his theses uh, to Rome and started the big debate there. And ultimately, of course, we see the big split, which led to the development of the Protestant denominations. But Martin Luther, Martin Luther came to the conclusion that Scripture does not support a distinction between those who have taken religious vows and those who have not. And what he's saying is, despite what has been taught, despite the theology that has been accepted for hundreds, well actually more than a thousand years, there's no support for it in Scripture. He said this, every man or every person's mode of life, therefore, is a kind of station assigned him by the Lord. That is, God gives us a vocation. 
Some is a vocation in some kind of priestly role. For others, that might be as a teacher, as a bookkeeper. As someone who fixes computers, as an administration officer, as a CEO, even as an economist, right? And every single one of these is worthy. That was what Martin Luther said. Other reformers like uh, John Calvin spoke of the idea of vocation, that it was a good thing. Now, Calvin also was the first person who spoke about what we now call spheres of influence. He called them spheres of influence. And he distinguished between government and the church. He said both are ordained by God. Their purpose is to bring the stability or order where there would otherwise be chaos. So there's a, a purpose in creation for these sovereign spheres of influence. They're ordained by God and each is given specific roles. But he also said one must not encroach upon the other. That is, the church is established to do certain things, to have a certain influence, and government is established to do certain other things. And they should never try to do what the other does. Right? They're sovereign because God's ordained them. They're spheres of influence because they have boundaries. Now, a bit later on, a few hundred years later on, Abraham Kuyper, who was a, a theologian, a reformed theologian, he was also Prime Minister of, of Holland, of the Netherlands. He wrote quite a lot of theology and he expanded on Calvin's idea of spheres of influence. And he talked about the university uh, and the arts and um, as well as government and church and so on. So he added, as it were, to the list of spheres, but he didn't change the thinking that they're, they're ordained by God and God is sovereign over every one of them. But the roles are specific in each sphere and what someone is doing in one sphere, they shouldn't try to do in another. That leads to the idea which some Reformed theologians hold to today that, the, say for example, the business of business, which of course is one of my interests, the business of business is to make a profit. The business of church is to attend to the spiritual needs of the people. That is, the, the work of bringing people into relationship with the Lord, that's the work of the church. And in a sense, you kind of delegate people like me to do that. So it's my job to be out on the street and saving people. You're out there in business making a profit and then you, set, you bring some of that profit into the church in order to finance the work that I'm doing on the streets, so to speak, all right? Now I think that's wrong thinking. I think that to simply say the role of business is to make a profit and the role of the church is to attend to the spiritual needs of the people is actually to argue that there's something different spiritually between being in a business and making a profit and being a professional 
pastor or priest in a church and doing what I'm doing now. That there's somehow something different about them. Now, the, the weird thing here, well, let me just go on and talk a little bit about the Puritans and the Quakers. Because, you know, the Puritans and Quakers are very well known for their influence in business. And uh, some pretty well-known brands were started by Quakers, Cadbury's is one. Some very large international banks were started by Quakers as well. They had a pretty good attitude towards business. And uh, they, they elevated business in, in, in terms of that spiritual hierarchy, basically saying there, there's no difference. That working in business, and for many at that time it was perhaps farming or something like that, that's hierarchically just as good as being the local priest. But they actually went further than that and developed what we call today the Puritan or Protestant ethic, which really focused on work as the central thing. And so, so instead of the idea that God assigns us a vocation or calls us vocationally, the most important thing is to have a job, to do work and to be diligent in that work. And eventually we get to a, an idea such as that expressed by President Calvin Coolidge. The man who builds a factory builds a temple. The man who works there worships there. Then we know biblically, no, a factory can't be a temple. But where temples of the Holy Spirit, and then where the church gathered, where a temple of God. That's not to say that working in the factory isn't important. And it's not to say that it's not a spiritual activity. But the factory itself isn't a temple. Let me read now a, a quote from Dorothy Sayers. Some people may, may know about Dorothy Sayers. She was a, an author. She wrote some uh, mystery crime novels. They're not the best. She, she's not as good as Agatha Christie. <laughs> Not as good as Poirot. Um, but she was also a theologian. She wrote a number of books on, on theology. And, and one of the things she said this, uh, this was about 1947, I think. This quote comes from. In nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as in her failure to understand and respect the secular vocation. She has allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, the secular work of the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends and that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. So we got to the point where the average person was no longer very interested in church. Because we made Sunday the main thing spiritual. And that when you walk out of these four walls, 
into your job, into your family situation, into your local community, that wasn't spiritual stuff at all. And the only way we could make your work spiritual was through tithing and offering, which gave it then some kind of purpose spiritually. So I think that part of the reason why we have so many people who think of themselves as Christians today who don't actually think that the institutional church matters is that the church itself has driven people away. Because we've made people feel that unless they're a pastor, a worship leader, you know, a youth leader or something like that, that somehow what they're doing doesn't matter so much to God. And I think it's a tragedy if our theology says that the business of business is to make a profit and the business of the church is to attend to the spiritual needs of the people. No. All of us, when we are the church scattered, has a responsibility to minister to people. And in the case of Australia, on the average Sunday in church, there's about 1.6 million people. On the average workday, Monday to Friday, there's about 12.5 million people working in paid employment. So who's best placed to reach the 12.5 million? It's not me standing here on Sunday morning. It's you in your everyday workplace, in your neighbourhood, in your family. And the equipping that should be going on here, sure, to help you in your specific vocational calling, but the equipping here should be to encourage you to the point where you feel confident and comfortable being an ambassador for Jesus Christ when you walk out of these doors. But the tide is turning. And I, I've, done, I've done quite a lot of reading in, in this area. I've actually written, written on this area as well. But since the 1990s, there's been these two streams of thought in, in theology, and, and not always by professional theologians, but by, by people who are writing theologically. There's been two streams, one on the theology of work and the other one on the theology of business. And, and, and this works in other areas as well. It's just that I'm most familiar with what's going on in the areas of theology of work and theology of business. And what's happening is that we're moving back to that new testament of understanding of Christianity as being whole of life. That is, it, it is something which is at the fore of everything we do. We're not somehow different when we come to church on Sunday. Right? Our faith is to inform the whole of our lives, everything we do. Be it whatever we contribute to church, the institutional church on a Sunday, the church gathered, be it when we're at the church scattered. Everything is spiritual. There's no sacred secular divide. 
And the person who picks up your garbage, what's usually a truck now, a machine that picks up your garbage, but the person who's driving the garbage truck, what they are doing in God's eyes is of no less importance than what I am doing on a Sunday morning. It's of no less importance. What you do is of no less importance in God's eyes than what the leader, the national president of Australian Christian churches does. Because there is no hierarchy in God's kingdom. No hierarchy. So, what are we doing on Sundays when we're the church gathered? We should be equipping the saints for works of service. When we're the church scattered, we should be doing those works of service. Here, when we're in that institutional context, when we're gathered together, we should be being equipped for the works of service. When we're outside the four walls, we should be doing the works. In fact, I would go so far as to say that I should remove that word role and write purpose. Equipping the saints for works of service is the purpose of the church gathered. Doing the works of service is the purpose of the church scattered. I want to read something to you. This is actually from a letter, like an open letter to pastors. I won't read the whole of it because it would take too long, but a portion of it has the little heading, so why do we gather as the church? We church, in quote marks, to glorify God. We gather around God. Romans 12.1 commands us to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. This lifestyle propels communal witnessing, 1 Peter 2.9. Communal repenting, Acts 2 verse 38. Communal worshipping, Psalm 150, Ephesians 5.19. And communal teaching, Colossians 3.16. We gather because we are one body drawn together by God to be a people of God who live for God. We testify to God's greatness. We disciple others through life together. We serve, teach and encourage not just one another but the world at large. We do not ultimately come together for Sunday worship service to experience an emotional response that brings joy to us as consumers. Now many Westerners gather for this very reason. Rather we gather because God has united us. We gather because we live life together in being effective witnesses to our local communities. We gather because the diversity of the local church should mirror heaven to a dying, lost and sinful world. Christians are made to gather. So again, I restate the issue at hand. Do believers and church attenders really know this? 
and this is addressed to pastors, even if you think your church members know this, you may want to re-educate them because there might be blind spots in your pews. Thankfully, everyone in the church has a purpose. And that purpose unfolds as we respond to God's vocational call on our life and to the specific assignment to which he draws us. As you know, I express this particularly in the context of business. You know that I'm involved in Kingdom Investors and Business as Mission. Both of those ultimately are about transforming whole nations, holistic transformation in every dimension of life. I love that because I think that recognises whole of life Christianity. There's no sacred secular divide. There's a purpose for the church gathered and there's a purpose for the church scattered. Both are critically important to God's work in the earth.